today we're carrying on in our teaching series in Ephesians um, that we've been in for the past few weeks, uh, working our way through this book in the New Testament. And a couple of weeks ago, Pete introduced uh, the series and he mentioned that the key thing that you need to know about this book is that throughout the chapters, Paul is reminding his readers that they need to know that they are citizens of heaven. And if they're citizens of heaven, they need to work out how they live that out in their context. So in the context of Ephesus, this Roman, um, um, Roman city. And as followers of Jesus, like their identity is in Christ. And the same is true for us, right? Like we are also citizens of heaven. Like for everyone in this room who follows Jesus, like our permanent address is the kingdom of God. But this side of eternity, our task is to work out how to live that out in the context of London. So today we're honing in on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. Um, And I'm not going to lie, like it's not the easiest of passages. Um, This hasn't been the easiest of talks to write. And not just because of the fact that he talks a lot about circumcision at the start. Um, It's challenging because Paul is reminding us again just how countercultural the gospel really is. So if you've got a Bible, head um, to Ephesians chapter 2. It's going to come up on the screen as well. And I'm going to read it out. So verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, just in case you're wondering, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Amen. So in these verses, um, kind of before our passage today, so in the first um, 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul is saying, like, you have been reconciled to God, like you were sinners, and yet because of grace, you have been reconciled to the Father. And many of us would just love to stop there at verse 10. Like, that sounds great, forgiveness of sin, like reconciliation with God, wonderful. Um, But in our verses today, Paul is saying, like, no, no, no. Like, reconciliation with God means reconciliation with one another. Like, it's not an add-on. Like, to be in Christ is by very definition to be drafted into a new family. And that new family, Paul is saying, isn't made up of people from one group. Because of the cross, every single person in this world is invited in. As one commentator on Ephesians said, the cross isn't simply a bridge that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that tears down any wall that separates. And this is the radical message of the gospel. And this is also what makes the gospel so offensive. 
Because in a world that constantly sets ourselves up as the judge of who meets the criteria to be acceptable, the gospel says, no, no, you're all equal at the foot of the cross. And this is what we're going to look at today. Um, In a world of tribalism, where people who don't share the same views as us, who don't think like us um, or act like us, are portrayed as enemies to be hated. Like, what does it mean to follow a man who didn't just love his enemies, but who died for them? Like, what does it mean to live as citizens of that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, in a world full of division? So it's just a nice and light topic for you on your summer Sunday. Welcome to church. Um, So let's maybe pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you that your presence is with us right now. And we just declare you afresh as Lord in this place. And Lord, I pray that you would come, that you would speak to us through your word, through Ephesians 2. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray that you take these words that I'm about to use, use them for your glory. Give us open hearts to your word today. Amen. Amen. So there's a lot going on in this passage. We've got Gentiles, we've got circumcision, we've got the blood of Christ. Like it can feel a mile away from here today in King's House. And yet what Paul is saying is something that our culture, something that our church desperately needs to hear right now. Like we have a story that contains the power to bring unity where there is division, to make a way where it seemed impossible in a culture of polarization to bring peace. And I just want to acknowledge, like, right at the start of this talk, I know this is a lot easier to say than it is to live it out. Like, it can be easy to kind of preach this message. It can be a lot more painful, a lot more costly to live it. But at the same time, like, Jesus didn't mean for this just to be rhetoric, for this just to be a nice sentiment. Like, this is the way of his kingdom. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And so um, I just encourage you... um, I guess today, like if this stirs stuff up for you, that's okay. Um, Just say to Jesus, like, here I am. Like, would you come? Would you speak to me? Um, He's a good, good father. um, And he wants to meet with us today. So we often say at KXC, the story you live in is the story you live out. And so I just want to unpack two competing stories around this topic. Firstly, you've got the world story. Um, so like, what is this cultural narrative of our city? A story that kind of seems to be causing greater divides than it does seem to be bringing us closer together. And secondly, look, what is the gospel story? What is the message that we have as Christians and how do we live that out? So firstly, um, understanding our culture's narrative. And just as a heads up, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive here. I promise you I will be coming up. So just hold on. Five minutes later, no, I am going to come up somewhere. Um, So uh, we need to unpack what's going on in our world at the moment. And what some sociologists, they are kind of reflecting on this age, and they're calling it an individualistic age of tribalism. I warned you, okay? Which I know sounds like a lot of jargon on a Sunday afternoon. Hang with me. Because behind the jargon, this gets to the heart of why even though we're the most connected generation ever, we've also never been so lonely. Like, if we can get our head around these concepts, we can start to see why we live in a city of nine million people. And yet, instead of feeling like this city has an incredible sense of community, it's actually a place of real isolation and loneliness. So I just want to break down these two concepts, tribalism and individualism. So firstly, tribalism. Like, it won't be a surprise to you, I'm sure you've heard this again and again, that our nation um, is incredibly, increasingly divided. 
like tribalism or anti-community is on the up. And people in this kind of way of thinking are drawn together, not based on mutual love or interest or hobbies, but people are drawn together based on mutual hate. Um, this, you know, you've got the same enemy as me, let's be friends. The primary mode for us finding a sense of belonging is determined by what we are opposed to. Whether it's a worldview, maybe it's a mindset, maybe it's an ideology, we judge people and characterize them based on their stance on individual issues. And the divides are deepening. Um, a recent study in the US um, showed that 40% of Americans think the people on the opposing side to them in a debate are evil. I actually think the people are evil. And we can see this trend in our society, whether it's in media, whether it's in politics or entertainment, like people are appealing to what we dislike, what we, what we class as bad. In London, we see how easy it is for different people to live alongside each other without actually having any connection. It's easy to um, kind of live at home, not really know your next door neighbor, let alone know the person on your street. We're encouraged to make friends based on people who agree with us, who have the same kind of social and moral agreements as to what class is someone good, as what class is someone as bad. And partly this is a product of our second concept, individualism. We've gone from an age of us to an age of me, and everything now centers around the self. And underneath individualism is this belief that the purpose of life is no longer a communal one that requires sacrifice of the individual for a common goal. Instead, our purpose in life is to look after our own personal peace. And when that is taken care of, like, then we'll be happy. Like, if we can be kind and help people along the way, if we can be generous, wonderful, great, added bonus. But actually, like, our personal sense of inner peace comes first. Like, that's the priority. The problem is, though, in a world that believes peace comes through obtaining your desires and wants, when you don't get these, or if someone stands in your way, then you start to spiral. Anyone who challenges our worldview can't be our friend. Instead, they become opposition to us, and you find yourself getting more and more isolated. Like We live in this strange, really weird tension between desperately wanting to connect with people, to kind of feel part of something bigger, and yet also fearful that other people's views might somehow limit us. And in a world of kind of expressive individualism, anything that limits us is seen as harmful. Is it any wonder then that we have a society that is increasingly polarized and at the same time desperately lonely? Anyone who doesn't agree with us becomes an enemy and an already divided world is getting more and more divided. Um, as part of this talk, I delved into an area that I've never delved into before, um, the psychology of enemies, which um, you can tell my life, my kind of week's been light and breezy. It's been a wonderful week. Um, but I genuinely did find this absolutely fascinating. Um, research has long shown that humans are tribal, and there's a really kind of healthy version of that. You naturally categorize people as being kind of in your tribe or not. That's just a natural part of life. And those who aren't are seen as enemies, um, and that has a psychological purpose in your bodies, like self-preservation. In other words, it's a protective mechanism, which makes sense. But in a culture of individualism, when individuals decide who is classed as an enemy, like this tribalism becomes toxic. Psychologists say there are a few different ways this plays out. Like enemies act as a source of blame. Um, anything that goes wrong in like kind of my life, I can just blame on my enemy so I don't have to take responsibility for it. 
Weirdly as well, enemies give us a sense of control. It allows us to answer those like deeper, more disturbing questions of suffering or of evil by pointing the finger and saying like, they're the problem. Like the evil and the suffering in the world, like that person is responsible for it. It was very, I just feel like I've just been accusing the live stream here of like, you're not responsible for it guys, don't panic. I'm not pointing at you. And there was this class and fascinating kind of clinical study that was done where people were put into two groups. And one of the groups was told to think of an enemy, like visualize someone who's opposed to you and think about their face, like visualize them. And then they had to record their emotional sense of well-being afterwards. And the people who had thought about an enemy consistently were found to feel like the world was less dangerous and less disordered. Like they had almost like identified evil. They'd put a name and a face to it in their minds. Like evil lives over there. And because of that, they felt like they were in control. It ironically made them feel more safe. But the thing with an individualistic culture is that when people are viewed as safe or threat based on our own individual worldview, when you have thousands of individuals doing this in a city, society just keeps on getting more and more and more divided. Like this way of living which is meant to protect the self, to obtain inner peace, only increases fear and serves to keep the wounds from healing. And I don't know about you, but it's easy to look at the state of the world and the task just seems impossible, too hopeless. But as Andy Squires puts it, in a world where hopelessness is the only reasonable conclusion to come to, like we are not reasonable people. Like, we belong to a different story. And this gospel story is not about pursuing what we want in life. It's a story about a man laying down his own life so that his enemies might know peace. Ephesians 2 tells us because of Jesus' death on the cross, this ground has already been won for us. Like following the way of Jesus isn't about coming up with an incredibly innovative idea for the polarization of the world or coming up with a miracle solution. Like don't get me wrong, we need a miracle solution, but that miracle happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. And so our responsibility, the church's responsibility, is to take this good news that Jesus has made a way, to take that message that the cross has made a way possible and live it out in a divided world. The church is called to be the prophetic sign to our city that it is possible to be family, not based on views or based on ideology, but based on our commitment to Jesus as Lord. We're told in verse 14 that Jesus is our peace. Our peace doesn't come about through pursuing our own desires and wants. It comes about through Jesus. And because of that, for those who receive that peace, he empowers to be peacemakers in the world. The New Testament paints this incredible picture of enemies who had nothing in common, but because of Jesus could sit down together, eat with one another, share a meal as if they were family. And John Mark Comer, he puts it like this when he says that the act of sharing a meal with different people is a prophetic witness to the powers and principalities of darkness that their reign of evil is coming to an end. That because of the cross, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down and so their days are numbered because Jesus is Lord. Like it puts a whole new spin on a small group dinner with an average baked potato, doesn't it? <laughs> 
But this is what our passage is getting at today. Because of the cross, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down and a new humanity has been formed. Like you and I, our identity is in Christ. We are a new creation. And so the invitation is to live that identity out in our offices, in our workplaces, in our communities. So how is this story different to our culture's narrative? Well, people live as if individual peace is the highest purpose of life. But the gospel message says that the purpose of life is relationship with Jesus. Like the goal isn't a comfortable life. It isn't even self-preservation. Like the way of Jesus is to take up our cross, to give up our lives, to follow him. And because of that, rather than everything centering around ourselves, everything centers in this new humanity around the person of Jesus. Like we are not Lord of our lives, but Jesus is. And as our lives are drawn around him, we're simultaneously drawn into this new family. Fear loses its grip on us and the peace of Jesus, which can never be taken away, let never be snatched away from you. Like that gives us the strength to live this out. Jesus sums it up like this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In other words, part of our identity as children of God, part of being adopted into his family is therefore to be peacemakers in the world. And I just want to make it really clear, it's important to say um, that peacemaking is different to peacekeeping. Like peacekeeping is just trying to like maintain harmony, even if that harmony is false, avoiding conflict, not causing a stir. But peacemaking is totally different. Peacemaking is actively going to where there is no peace and making peace. It's not avoiding conflict, but working towards resolving conflicts. It's not glossing over injustice or saying it doesn't matter. It's working for justice. It's not just saying, oh, let's just all get along. Like it's doing the hard, the deep-rooted work of reconciliation, which is really costly. It's really painful and it takes time. But the power of this gospel message to bring this about is witnessed to throughout the centuries, throughout the gospels. Um, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus calls Matthew, a tax collector, to become one of his 12 disciples, like part of the inner team. So just imagine the scene for a moment. I've transported you back from King's House to first century Galilee. Um, you're walking through like a dusty street, um, talking to your friends. You've just been at work. You're heading home for some dinner. And your friend turns to you and says like, hey, have you heard that um, Jesus has chosen Matthew as a tax collector? Um, He's chosen this tax collector to be one of his 12 disciples. Like, rage would most likely start to raise up, rise up in you. Like, doesn't Jesus know that this guy has been stealing from you and your family for years? Like, Matthew was working for the Romans, the people who had invaded your country, and Matthew was taking taxes for them and charging a fee on top of it, which he would pocket for himself. As much as 80% of your wage was going to him and to the Romans. And more than once, he'd sent Roman soldiers to your door because you'd missed a couple of weeks of payment. Like, not only was he colluding with the enemy, he was plunging you and your family further into poverty and benefiting from it. And Jesus, like, this man who you thought might just be, like, the hope that you've been waiting for, the person you've been praying for, he had just chosen him to be one of his disciples. Like, how do you think you'd have felt in that moment? Like rage, anger, how do you think you'd have then felt towards Jesus? 
Like Jesus' own reputation suffered because of who he hung out with. He was accused all the time of fraternizing with the enemy because he chose a tax collector. Not a past tax collector, not a reformed one who had apologized profusely and changed his ways, but a current tax collector to be part of his group. Like when we hear that Jesus hung out with sinners and outcasts, we kind of love that about Jesus, right? In our modern day context, we're like, yeah, that makes Jesus sound so great. Um, Defying the powers that be, we love that about him. And he was doing that, but we actually miss how uncomfortable that would have been to ordinary people. Like if we translated this into the 21st century, imagine the people, the person who you think is totally unacceptable, like their political views, their values, the way they've chosen to live their life, totally opposite to yours. Like that's a better comparison to understand how offensive or uncomfortable Jesus made ordinary people feel. This is not a cute story. Like it's actually not compelling. It's deeply subversive and offensive. But it continues. In Mark 3, we're told the names of 12 disciples that Jesus chooses. And alongside Matthew, the tax collector, we see that one of the 12 is a man called Simon the Zealot. And as the name says on the tin, Simon, he was a zealot. Um, And zealots were an insurgency group made up of Jewish men. They hated the Romans, so much so that they trained to be able to take them out. They basically were like domestic terrorists. They used guerrilla tactics against um, the Romans and against Roman supporters. They were also known as the Zakari, which is an Aramaic word meaning dagger men dramatic name, Daggerman. Um, But it doesn't really take much to actually imagine what they did. They'd go into a crowded marketplace, just imagine the scene, like lots of hustle bustle, bartering, um, a busy kind of marketplace in Jerusalem. And the crowd wouldn't notice them, they'd put their hoods up, they'd find a Roman um, soldier, or even just a Roman supporter, so someone like Matthew, a tax collector. They'd go up behind them, they'd take their dagger out, They'd slit their throats, and then they'd basically like hide back into the crowd, hoods up, disappear back into the kind of underworld of Jerusalem. They were this fighting force. They were ruthless. They were determined to fight their cause, take out the Romans and their supporters. So with this context in mind, like let's head back to that dusty street in Galilee. And if you carry on walking down the road with your friends, you might just hear some kind of voices. And you you look across, you see a house. You kind of peer through the gates and you see a courtyard. And people are gathered together there. And then you see Simon the Zealot. And you see Matthew, the tax collector. Like not engaged in a fight to a death, but sitting down sharing a meal together. Like violence was assumed between these two people. And yet because of Jesus, they are drawn together. Like these men who should never have been able to sit together became the apostles that Jesus used to build his church. Like living proof of the power of the gospel to do the impossible. Uh, We don't know what happened to their politics. We don't know what happened to their worldviews. We don't know what they ended up thinking about the Romans. What we do know, though, is that Jesus, um, they followed Jesus together and they died spreading this message of reconciliation. That this is the gospel story, a subversive, offensive message, but one that carries power to do what we cannot do by ourselves. Like, was it easy with Simon and Matthew? Like, I bet it wasn't. I bet those early days, can you just imagine, like, you know, I reckon it was very, very difficult. It probably just wasn't difficult. It's probably painful as all of the hurt kind of started to surface. 
I imagine it took time. But what Jesus does is he tears down the dividing wall of hostility and he makes a way for what we thought was impossible. So just as I um, come into land, um, I'm aware this is a huge topic with so many nuances and elements to it. And I'm aware it's not easy. Like it can stir up a lot for us and in lots of different areas of our lives as well. And please don't hear me wrong. Like forgiveness and reconciliation do not mean that things just automatically return to the way things were. Like there is consequence to sin. Like justice is an important part of this process. Like peacemaking involves change at all levels of society. It's not an either or when it comes to forgiveness and justice. It's a both and. There's other elements that are really important to this as well. Like grieving, like lamenting the brokenness of this world is an important part of the journey. And there aren't quick fixes. Like this is a long process that can take a lifetime. But what Ephesians 2 tells us is that the division that exists in this world has a shelf life. Like its days are numbered. And for people who are trapped currently in a place of fear and isolation, Jesus comes with a message of peace. And as I was praying for us today, kind of slightly pleading with the Lord to give me some sense of direction in this huge topic, I just felt the Lord highlight one um, thing. And this is what I want to land with. I felt like he wanted to release to us fresh prophetic imagination for this area. Like the ability to imagine, like to see what will be, like what is coming and what is breaking in, and then align that um, with our everyday lives. And Walter Brueggemann, he wrote a book called um, The Prophetic Imagination. And I just want to read you a quick quote from it, because I think it actually gets to the heart of what the Lord wants to do with us today. Um, And in it, he kind of refers to kings and he refers to prophets. And he's commenting on the Old Testament kings and prophets. And he says this. The prophet does not ask if the vision can be implemented. For questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. Our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. The same royal consciousness that makes it possible to implement anything is the one that shrinks imagination, because imagination is a danger. Thus, every totalitarian regime is frightened of the artist. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing future alternatives to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. There's lots in there. But in other words, like, what might it mean not to come under the hopelessness of our city? Like, to be real about the pain and the darkness, not to deny it at all. But at the same time, to point to the horizon, to help people see what Jesus has done and the kingdom that is breaking in. Like, how do we, as KXC, live as prophetic people operating in London as citizens of heaven? Like, these are just really small kind of first step examples, but, you know, the way that we act with one another, like the way we welcome people who are different to us, the way we're friends with people who disagree with us on certain things, how we refuse to shun people, but recognize that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Like, what might that look like for you um, at work or how you spend your time? Maybe, like, you know that you've joined in in excluding someone. Or maybe you know actually in your heart you're casting judgment on someone right now. Like what might it look like to act in the opposite spirit? Or you know, if you have no friends who think differently to you, have different views to you, what might it look like to bridge that divide? 
What might it look like to make sure when you pray, you're not just praying for your friends and for your family, but you're praying um, for your street, for your neighborhood, and for even people who totally disagree with you. Like this is like a really another small example, but what might it look like not to sit with people you know each week at church? What might it look like um, to actually actively connect with different people? And when you feel that pang that we all do that says, oh, I just want to get my needs met. Like, what about me? To take that need to Jesus. What if we started to allow ourselves to prophetically imagine what our streets, what London, what King's Cross, fill in the blank could look like? Um, And this is what a man um, called Christian Führer did in the 1980s. Um, And I'll finish with this story. He was a pastor in Leipzig, which is um, in East, or was in East Germany, under um, a communist regime, a really kind of hard, um, oppressive communist regime. And perhaps the most kind of famous symbol of this time was the Berlin Wall, which separated East Germany from the rest of Western Europe. And in 1982, Christian Führer, he started praying in his city in Leipzig because he'd started to imagine what a world could look like where that wall came down, where the oppression that he was experiencing um, from this regime and that his city were under um, kind of came to an end, this prevailing sense of fear um, and isolation. What happens if that could be replaced with peace? And with that dream in mind, he started Prayers for Peace. Um, And this was just kind of for a handful of people on a Monday evening. Um, You know those kind of slightly awkward prayer meetings? This was one of them. Um, Kind of only, you know, a few dozen people showed up. But they kept on going. And every single Monday night, um, they were praying. They were captured by this vision for what their city could look like if the kingdom of heaven broke in. And slowly but surely, like the prayer meeting started to grow. Because when you start to pray for the impossible to happen, when you ask for God's vision to break into the world, and when you spend time in his presence, hope will start to rise in you. And people who are full of hope are incredibly attractive to a city that's lost in fear. And so these meetings, they started to grow, so much so that the East German authorities started to get worried about the number of people meeting. They started to see this as a threat to the regime. So they threatened the prayers. They put pressure on them to stop. And when they didn't, there were beatings, arrests were made. And yet people still turned up every Monday night to pray for this prophetic vision of peace to break out in their city. And things came to a head in October 1989. So seven years after they'd been, or seven years they'd been praying for. The authorities by this point, they'd counted, um, they branded these prayer meetings as a counter-revolution. An announcement appeared in the local newspaper announcing that this revolution would be put down by whatever means necessary on Monday the 7th of October. So in other words, if they showed up on the 7th, they could expect to be killed. Doctors started to visit Pastor Führer, urging him to stop the prayer meetings, but saying, if you go ahead, we'll kind of set up clinics outside, like they were preparing basically for a massacre. And as Monday night arrived, like you could feel the tension in the air, like what was going to happen? And as Pastor Führer opened the doors of St. Nicholas's Church, he looks out and he sees 8,000 people who have showed up to pray, captivated by this vision of peace that he had first pointed to on the horizon. Other churches opened their doors as well, and people crowded in to pray for peace. 
And after an hour-long service, an hour-long prayer meeting, um, Pastor Fiora, he leads the worshippers outside, and around 70,000 people had gathered in the city. They were clutching kind of lit candles, and the crowds began to walk around the city, past the Stasi headquarters, which is like this building that kind of symbolized um, the oppression of this regime, and they just started chanting, like, we are the people, no violence, no violence. And the tension starting to mount. The armed police come out. They are um, lining the streets. Tension is growing. They've got their guns at the ready, um, already kind of lined up, ready to fire. They're just waiting for the command um, from the officer. And at the decisive moment, the police stood down and let the protesters march. And when asked later in a, in a press um, conference, to, uh, someone asked the East German official, like, why didn't you um, do anything? Why did you let them protest? And the East German official, he just looks at the person, he just says, we were ready for anything except for prayers and candles. And this moment proved to be the critical moment in the reunification of Germany. Like thousands of people had just been allowed to protest without any consequence. And so these protests started to ripple across the country, countless other non-violent protests taking place. And exactly a month later, the Berlin Wall, this wall that separated for years, was torn down. East and West reunified again, and the history of that country completely changed. Like Perster Führer, he was interviewed years later, um, and he was asked, like, why on earth did you do what you did? And he just simply said, we did it because the church has to do it. The history of a country changed, like literally a dividing wall torn down because a bunch of ordinary people persisted in prayer for years and kept on imagining what it looked like for the kingdom of heaven to break out in their city. Like what might it look like if we did the same in ours? If we asked for the spirit to give us imagination for what London could look like in 10 years time if we persisted in prayer for those walls to come down? asking for his strength to empower us, to bring this message of reconciliation.